Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Stephanie Sawyer Kitty McKeon Lorian Wheeler Justin McCumber Christiana Ellis Michael Lamangelo Stephen H. Wilson With original music by Danny Shade This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, episode 25. Hi, this is J.C. Hutchins, author of the podcast novel trilogy Seventh Son and author of Personal Effects Dark Art, a new supernatural thriller novel that combines a novel with the experience of an alternate reality game. You can find my work at jchutchins.net. You're listening to Predestination, and this is the story so far. Nobody trusts a defector. That's the price Joss Kyle paid when he abandoned his post as national security advisor. He knew that if he ever got involved in politics again, he'd be a marked man. He spent years running from bounty hunters working for Senator Bill Shelley before finally escaping to the colonies where, he now knows, he made his fatal mistake. He fell for a pretty face and found something to believe in. Douglas Reeves, the leader of the revolution, doesn't think he can be trusted, but thinking fast on his feet, Joss planted enough doubt in Reeves' mind to earn himself a stay of execution, at least till the morning. Now he's under house arrest, guarded by the woman who got him into this mess in the first place. But the game isn't over. In his years on the run, Joss learned how to survive. He slipped the assassin's trap before, and he's determined to win free again. He may still have a trump card up his sleeve, and a plan on how to play it. Cassie Ornithal, her loyalty stretched to the breaking point, has to decide who to trust, and she has to decide soon. If Joss is not a traitor, they're going to need his expertise to win the coming war. If he is, it may well fall to her to kill him. The evening she spent in Joss's bed hasn't convinced her, and in a few hours everything will change, and the fate of the revolution might well rest on her decision. She needs some way to find out for sure. And she, too, has a plan. Cassie's hand traced idle circles around Joss's cock, up over his navel, down his thighs. He moaned softly in his sleep. For a man who habitually slept sitting up in front of a door with a gun in his lap, when he lay back on an actual bed, he was remarkably unrousable. She pinched him, just to make sure, but he did nothing more than shift uncomfortably in his sleep. Well, it's now or never. She had to know, and there was only one way to find out. Cassie slid out of bed and padded her way across the floor and out the door. Behind his main bookcase, Jaws kept a terminal. It would be biometrically sealed, but that wouldn't be much of a problem. She had his DNA all over her neck, her breasts, under her fingernails, and running down her leg. She found her clothes in a heap near the living room chair where her gun and holster still lay abandoned. She reached into the back pocket of her trousers and retrieved a cleaning swab. The bookshelf slid aside easily. The concealment was cosmetics, not security. The screen flashed to life. The words, Blood sample required blinked with gentle insistence. She shook her head and smiled. 
He'd made it far too easy. Cassie splayed wide the fingers of her right hand and, with her left, ran the swab under them. She didn't keep them long, but they were long enough to collect what she was looking for. When they were fucking, she always scratched him up pretty good. He never complained. The blood was already well clotted, but it wasn't quite dry yet. Little tacky droplets hung to the end of the swab, black in the screen's cold blue light. She wiped the head on the sample plate, leaving a streak of Joss's DNA. The plate retracted, the computer did its nearest approximation of thinking, and then the screen cleared. She only needed one thing here. If Joss hadn't actually received those payments, or if he had, thinking they were from another source, she could plant her flag on his side of the line and keep her ally, come what may. His filing system was as unimaginative as it was meticulous. She knew she had an advantage on a run-of-the-mill snoop. She probably knew him better than most other people in his life. Even so, keeping his financial records in a folder marked Mammon was more than obvious. It was almost as if there was nothing on here he cared about anyone else finding. That was the case, she didn't know where else to look, and she still couldn't trust him. The traditional triple-nested double-entry journal kept the records it was supposed to. It showed his personal books for tax purposes. It listed an amazing amount of cash withdrawals, probably for bribes on a secret account somewhere. And it showed phalanx, monthly expenses, licensing fees, insurance, liquor sales income, food sales income, gambling income, ancillary income, cover... She backed up. Ancillary income. She sorted through the transfers by type and generated a report screen. As Cassie scanned it, comparing it mentally to what she'd found on the PPD, her stomach sank lower and lower until she was sure it would break through the deck. They matched. Every transfer in matched. Joss was on the take. The fucking bastard played her like an old tune. Well, he wasn't going to win this time. Quickly, before she got angry enough to yell or hit something or make any noise that would wake him up, she retrieved her knife from her belt. She snapped the blade out and scratched a short message into the console's paint, then left the knife there and closed the bookcase. It didn't matter. He wouldn't find it until after she took him down, when the Hartmans brought him back here to collect his things before the long, slow flight back to Luna. On Curie. Motherfucker! It wasn't Reeves' fault, but motherfucker she had to hate somebody, and he was already at the top of the list. He stole Jade from her, and now he was taking the best lieutenant she'd ever had. She slipped back into bed next to Joss, in the dark, and curled up next to him, throwing her left leg over and kissing him. These were the last few hours they wouldn't be enemies. She was going to enjoy them. After the meeting tomorrow, it would all be over, and he'd get her parting message. All's fair. On the other side of the bed, Joss took care to keep his breathing even and quiet, like it was when he was asleep. He knew what it sounded like. He'd recorded himself before and memorized the pattern. Once Cassie settled in and her breathing relaxed, he eased his grip on the SIG and shifted his weight, moving so that he could reach out over the pillow on the floor on his side of the bed, 
farthest from the door. He liked the way the SIGs handled. He always made sure to keep a spare handy. He hadn't expected her to find anything in her rifling through his computer, but it was always possible that someone, somehow, had planted evidence on him, or that she was shining him on while the cavalry arrived. In either case, she would have come back through that door with her gun on him. He counted his blessings that fate gave him the room not to leave her body on his floor. He let go of the pistol. When it dropped, it didn't so much as swoosh in the air. Perfect silence. Cassie never need know. They can shoot missiles into our domes, but they can't take our air. The book on Jade's PPD didn't do much to distract her. It couldn't shut out the PA system that the protesters set up to help them block the off-planet airlock. They can send troops in through the airlocks, and we'll kill them in the street. The shuttle was late. Something to do with a bombing last night shutting down traffic while the other airlocks were checked out. She should have gone up to the Gallery Bazaar, but her commute to Loxcore took her through the spaceport for a quick crater hop on the shuttle. The city was awake, life bursting out every seam as if the attacks were a blood sacrifice portending the coming of spring. Trying like hell to get into the office, Jade had to mill about listless among the hundreds of impromptu vendors' booths that sprang up overnight to accommodate the flash carnival of defiance that saturated the tunnels and the concourses and every other square inch of public space in Luna City. And the art booth she'd been buying from for years was making it all worse. 32? You're a thief! He couldn't be serious. Nobody pulled 32 credits for a set of pencils. I'm sorry, ma'am, but the shipments have been delayed. This is all we have for the next two weeks at least. The young Indian man behind the counter would have been beautiful if it wasn't for the patronizing grin. He stretched his arms out and shrugged like a Yiddish comedian. Nothing else coming in. I've been shopping here for three years. I need these. I'll give you 15 and not another cent. It wasn't his fault, but he was... Oh, God damn it! he was here. There was nothing she could do while she waited out the protest but draw, and she was down to nubs on everything. She had to have them. We don't make them. Get it. I'll make my own. Jade threw the case back down on the booth's counter and stalked off. She hoped they shattered in their cheap-ass little box. It was her own damn fault. She told them she would come into the office today, so that's where she was supposed to be, at bleeding work. She had to walk from the empty apartment through the stupid crowded spaceport to her stupid shuttle to hop craters to push paper for a stupid executive who would probably make her take minutes all day while he met with morons from the board or the American consulate. With the throngs of humanity choking the streets, she should have gone up to the gallery and picked up a model or two. Might even have pencils up there. Anything but going into the goddamn office to do a mindless job she could do just as well from home. She should be out in the streets having the time of her life. Loonies were a bloody-minded bunch, and they'd just as soon give the universe a finger as bend over and take a beating. So the terrorist attacks didn't keep people in their homes waiting for the next bit of bad news. They drove people out into the tunnels and galleries for impromptu festivals, and none of the semi-official security forces had a prayer of controlling the crowds. Tell that piece of low-driving rat shit I'm gonna dock him three weeks unless oh. he... Oh. Excuse me, Missy. 
A large, friendly-looking older man with a sad face nearly walked over her. No, I'm sorry. I'm not watching where I'm going. No worries, young'un. The place is full of people who can't see straight for all the pot in their kettles. Now. The man turned back to the group of surly-looking younger men walking behind him like goslings. Where's the grog? We've got to toast that little eel's new adventure in outer space. And the wake, Thurston? One of his entourage patted him on the shoulder. A cloud passed over the larger man's face as if he were remembering an old wound, but he covered it up again. No one noticed but Jade. Thurston? Christ on crutches, boy. My old mother's the only one calls me that, and she farts dust in the dear home soil of Kensington. All right, all right. Volish. The shorter man clapped him on the back as if congratulating him. Yeah, we've got to give that boy a proper wake. Anyone up for one-eyed jacks? The tribe of men looked for all the world like a victorious hunting party as they cheered and set off, arm in arm, singing a song Jade didn't recognize. They had the right idea. She wanted to join the party, but she knew Cassie would never forgive her. Doug was out there and hadn't called in two days. He surely knew by now. There wasn't any other reason he wouldn't at least send an email. Staying at home waiting felt useless, but celebrating in an orgy of defiance didn't seem to mean anything anymore. Going into work, doing useless crap all day long, working overtime, and plunging home to sleep in her chair at the end of the day was the only thing that made sense. She didn't really want to use the job to run away. The rest of the universe had just drained the life out of life when she wasn't looking, and nothing Not the throngs of people at the impromptu body painting expo. Not the sudden proliferation of weapons booths. Not the street musicians. Not the beautiful, whimsical, glorious smell of people packed together without killing, raping, or maiming one another. None of it made any difference. She knew it should have. She wanted it to. But it didn't. It was the thing that Jade and Cassie had dreamed together about as children during the long, dark nights hiding in the crevices of the great machines. One day, the migrant Terrans wouldn't have the protection of the colonial government. One day, they'd push the Terrans off Luna and make sure nobody could get away with the kind of things they grew up seeing every day. She wasn't naive enough anymore to believe it was that simple, but still, it was finally happening. She should have been elated. She should have been doing body paints for street dancers or dancing with them herself. But now, she looked out the long arch that lined the concourse. The earth hung just above the crater walls out the south-facing windows. She used to dream of going back there with Doug to see what it was really like. She'd wanted to understand him, to see where he grew up, and maybe one day show him Darkseid if it ever got safe enough to go back there. Now, it probably wouldn't happen. All around her, Luna City was awake, and Jade couldn't find it in herself to care. Nineveh slept uneasily. The couch didn't sit well underneath Allie, She had a bed, she'd gotten a room with two of them, but the thought that Jim might find his way into it to soothe her fitful sleeping, to try to be kind somehow, was more than she could bear. Through the door a few meters away, Jim counted the little dots in the ceiling tiles, wondering how many of them concealed little cameras and trying to keep his mind off the chill that kept him awake. 
On the floor above, Doug spent the night poring over every last scrap of data he could until his eyes burned out. The judge's cowl hung heavy enough that he didn't remember to email Jade. Thoughts of her danced at the edge of his mind as he tried to find sleep, but by the time it came, he couldn't tell the difference anymore between memories and dreams. Sometime during the night, Joss kissed Cassie on her ear and shuffled out of bed. He slid his trousers and shirt on, still rumpled and smelling from the day before, then found his hat and coat. He stepped out the front door and tucked the sig into a holster at the small of his back, a more comfortable place to carry it when he wasn't expecting to need it on two seconds' notice. It was 0300. He had time. The long corridors of Nineveh's residential ring were nearly empty this time of the morning. He passed the occasional vagrant sleeping up against the wall, huddled around his guitar or harp, hat still sitting pitifully in front of him hoping for the kindness of a passerby. The lift took him up two levels and along to the other side of the station. He found the door and tapped it gently. He'd hoped he wouldn't need to call in the favor. Truth be told, he never thought the kid owed him in the first place, and Joss had been paid back anyway a dozen times over with his efficiency. But it was best to be sure. The door dilated, and Mondu greeted him with a grin as wide as a watermelon. How great, Joss? Not tonight, please. I'm not in the mood to thumb through my mental lexicon. As you said. Mondu clapped Joss in a hearty embrace. Joss returned it. Welcome to my home, my friend. I hoped you'd come. Joss patted the younger man's back, and they separated and shared a smile. Thanks, Mondu. Please, come in. He didn't look much more than a boy, but his eyes showed more years. Who knew? It was an age where anyone could look any age they wanted, but something about Mondu seemed at odds with itself. His eyes were old, and his mind made the kind of connections only extreme age could make, but his spirit was young. So many times in the back room of Phalanx, Joss had taken off his headphones to hear Mondu lecturing his underlings. He always sounded like a seven-year-old boy chasing fireflies. Life bubbled out of him, just like it had the first time they'd met, a lifetime ago. Cafe? Thanks, I probably shouldn't. Ladies smell it on your breath, eh? Mondu waved his hand lazily at the sofa. Joss sat down and took his hat off his head. It was the proper thing to do when asking a favor. You don't miss much. Eight cameras on one table, Joss. We miss nothing. Send the vids to Fugitive? Sit, sit. You're leaving, then? I might not have a choice. How may I help? I need someone to give Fugitive a last once-over. I need oxytocin. Hell, I'll need a whole stock of weaponized hormones. I'll also need enough supplies for a couple of months. You'll be back, yes? I don't know. I hope so. This place... It's starting to smell like home. Consider it done, my friend. Anything else? Yes, one other thing. Tomorrow at about ten hundred, there's going to be a fight at the table you've been watching. I need you to make sure nobody gets hurt. And if I order a beer, I'm going to need cover to get out quick. Make sure I have a couple minutes, but watch your ass. They're dangerous. You are dangerous. <laughs> Don't remind me. Joss stood up, keeping his hat in his hands. Thank you. I owe you. No, you don't. He held Mondu's gaze for a moment, then dropped his eyes and headed for the door. 
The young man followed him and grabbed him by his arm. We are even, Joss. Beware your head. Don't get it damaged. I'll be fine. I've seen worse than this. Keep your eyes peeled. It is done. Joss looked fondly at the... He didn't really know what Mondu was after all. Kid, man, machine. He nodded once and stepped through the door. The corridor's home hadn't changed in the last half hour, but now he was looking at them for what might be the last time. He drew every detail in the back of his mind. He didn't actually like living in a tin can, but now that it came to it, he was going to miss this place. It was the first place he'd felt at home since Stanford all those long years ago. Joss stepped through his door and into his living room. Nothing seemed disturbed. Cassie's labored snoring came from the other room. Her body took a long time to get used to gravity. Night times weren't easy on it. She'd woken him up a couple times when she stopped breathing for a moment, as her diaphragm forgot that it had to push harder to exhale here than back home. He shucked his coat and tossed his hat onto its peg. If he was going tomorrow, he'd need to make sure Mondu could get at everything important, and that he couldn't get at anything else. He'd have to rekey the computer. Joss hit the switch to retract the bookshelf. He sat down at the stool that deployed from the edge of the inset desk. He yawned as he sped through the access change protocol and restored the file tree into something that would protect the things that he might want to come back for someday. Things he didn't want to trust to Fugitive's computer if it got jacked. Pictures of his children that he'd managed to find on the web, mostly. Someday... Joss glanced down at the clock. 04.30. He was going to need more sleep if tomorrow went south. He shut off the terminal and stood up. Half asleep already, he turned away to give the door space to close when his hand hit a small pocket knife. It bounced across the floor and came to a halt in the carpet pile near the easy chair. Looking down at his hand on the desk, he saw some scratches in the paint near where his hand found the knife. All's fair. He closed his eyes and shook his head. Cassie thought she'd found something. This was her way of apologizing. She probably thought he wouldn't see it until it was too late. Obviously expected Reeves and the Hartmans to do the dirty work. It almost made it worse. Almost. But she didn't come into his bedroom with a gun. The least he could do was return the favor. Well, that's done. It was good while it lasted. Joss slid his trousers off, dropped them into the same place he'd found them. He slipped Cassie's knife into the pockets. He tossed his shirt on top of the pile. A few hours more, and it would be time. He kissed Cassie when he slid into bed. For old time's sake. Sean, I owe you a vote of thanks, sir. The right hand's face on the PPD nodded at him in satisfaction. We have to protect our own, Belish. If we don't, who will? I just wish that poor boy... Thurston Appleby Shaw, his emotions rubbed raw by grog and justice, choked back his tears and started over. Sure you can make it down? Oh, I wish I could. You know I do. I'll be down later pay my respects. Y'all go ahead without me. Yes, sir. And thank you over again. 
A boy's blood don't need to cry no more because of you. The right hand nodded, and the call disconnected. Volish slipped the PPD into his pocket and stood up out of his office chair. He'd pulled Scott Walter's security authorization, deactivated his codes and pass cards, removed his biometrics from the database. Now it was finally time. The long walk to the Union Chapel didn't really register. The halls were alive with the smell of sacred incense, and the visions were already gathering around him. He passed the door to the room where he'd first interviewed the boy. The vending machine where they'd first kissed while waiting for a cup of coffee. The pea suit locker where Volish first realized that Walters was too young and too free-spirited for him to keep up with. The corridors seemed to ring with the laughter and humor he brought and Volish smiled, remembering the succession of petty scandals as the rookies always fought for the position of Walter's favorite so they could get preferential treatment at services. He entered the chapel and walked up to the front. The church didn't have any kind of ordination, but all the same, he never took the podium. He was boss all day. When he stood naked before God and the mysteries, he didn't want the authority. Today, he didn't have that option. And for Scotty, he did it with a smile. That man, after 12 years on the dock, he was hardly a boy anymore. Had hardly been a boy anymore. Damn it, blast these stupid leaking eyes. That man deserved the best Volish could give him. He looked out over the assembled mourners and at the small trinkets from Scott's apartment laid on the altar. His oil bowl, his photographs, his chalice. When the invocations and rituals were done, they'd all don their pea suits and walk his effects out to the plot near the external door. They'd set everything down so that, from the sky, it would look like a cross with a towel draping across it. Then they'd scatter some dust across the top of it all and anoint it with the sacred oil. And then, at last... Scotty's soul would be free to face judgment and merge with the ultimate depth of all things. But first, he had to make it through this speech. Scotty was the kind of light that Jesus don't send around often. He made the work light for all of us. Brought us the joy of the Lord. The man was the closest I've ever met to the man himself. And if he'd been at Capernaum... He'd have been the one in that room with the Savior instead of Lazarus. Volish set his PPD down. He never was any good at reading prepared speeches. He looked out over the faces, all the brave game faces and the glistening eyes, and he couldn't continue. He turned the screen off and leaned forward. I know some of you thought he was too irreverent. You thought he didn't take the oil seriously. Well, let me tell you, boys... That man was the best of us, and I'll miss him. I love that man, and don't one of you ever tell me a bad word about him, or I'll toss you out during the day and let the sun cook your ass like a goddamn rack of goat ribs. Everyone in the seats nodded in agreement. Some of them smiled privately. He wondered what memories they were replaying. Now you all get your chance, but for now... He bowed his head. Sweet Jesus bringer of the oil from heaven that makes us pure, harbinger of grace, 
bringer of light who reminds us that touch connects us to you. Remember in your wisdom your servant Scott Walters and hold him close to your fire. He was the best we had and we hope we do right by your loan of him to us. Volish didn't remember the rest of what he said. He couldn't hear it over the music of memory and tears. You've been listening to episode 23 of Antithesis Book 1, Predestination, and Other Games of Chance. Written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Original music by Danny Shade. Used with permission. This episode starred Stephanie Sawyer as Cassie Orenthal, Lorian Wheeler as Jade Oren, Stephen H. Wilson as Volish, Kitty Nakian as the computer, Christiana Ellis as the protester, Justin McCumber as the shopkeeper, and Jonathan Sawyer as Ferguson. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008, Kitty Nakian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1997 and 2008, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2009, Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Philippa Ballantyne has taken you to worlds of flesh and horror, walked you through Renaissance England and the realm of the Fae. But now she takes you somewhere no patio book has ever been. New Zealand. Step into the alternate history of Aotearoa, where magic and madness go hand in hand, where ancient power threatens to tear the world apart where a reluctant sorceress is our last hope. Visit weatherchild.com or subscribe to iTunes. A whole stock of weaponized hormones, he said, including oxytocin. What is Joss planning? And how many of you are heading to Wikipedia right now to try to figure it out? Only two episodes remain in our little story. Next week is when it all hits the fan. I'm going to try to release those episodes one after another, a day or two apart, maybe less. These episodes go to Danny Shade tomorrow night for full scoring, and I will drop them as soon as I get the music back. Can't offer a firm ETA as the finale scoring is a hefty job, but with how you've all been expressing appreciation for Danny's work, I thought it only appropriate to give him the chance to go out in style. I'm out in force around the potosphere this week. Check me out talking writing process and production with the Dead Robot Society at www.deadrobotsociety.com. You can also hear my new short story about a woman, a speakeasy, and a hurricane that never ends. It's called Buried Alive in the Blues, and you can find it at www.eroticaalacarte.com. Finally, tomorrow morning, my essay, As the Gods Themselves, posts at the Sci-Fi Journal. That's www.scifijournal.com, where phi is spelled P-H-I, as in philosophy. The essay is about science fiction, religion, and how the advance of technology affects them both. 
It's available in MP3 format as well as in text with footnotes and research references. Those of you interested in how the stuff I talk about on Apologia interfaces with science fiction will love this one. Watch the feed for the final pre-finale dealing in later tonight or tomorrow. Lots of good stuff from you guys and some fun spin-off conversations as usual. We'll be doing two more of them before the new novel. A post-book wrap-up dealing in where you guys send in your thoughts and I announce the winner of the What the Hell is Senator Shelley Up To contest. And a live roast hosted by T. Morris, which hopefully we'll be able to take live calls for. Those of you in the Bay Area, I'll be at Baycon this Memorial Day weekend. If you're planning to go, drop me a line. We can set up a time for us all to meet in the bar and hang out for a while. I'm also going to set up another pub crawl here before too long, some to commemorate the wrap-up and maybe also the launch of Down From Ten. I'll have uh, more time to schedule it once predestination is all done with, and I'll definitely keep you posted. Uh, Would the San Jose area be good for you guys this time? Let me know. As we come down to the end, please keep those comments and reviews coming iTunes, Podcast Alley, Podcast Pickle, Blueberry, every little bit helps. And as always, you can leave questions, comments, criticisms, attaboys, and death threats at dan at jdsawyer.net or on the blog at antithesis.jdsawyer.net. You can call and leave me voicemail at 206-350-5739 and remember to spread the word. If you like what you're hearing, tell your friends, post a link, give away MP3s, and pelt your enemies with CD copies of the first few episodes to get people hooked. The end is near. Everything is coming in the next two episodes. Who lives? Who dies? What has Volish done to Percy? How long until popular demand forces the lunar government into war? What verdict will Doug reach in the morning? And perhaps most importantly, now that he knows Cassie is against him, what will Joss do to her? Find it all out next week when we hear the climax. And until then, remember, it isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you rig the game. (laughs) 